What I'm about to say is the best sermon you will ever hear. It's not because the words I have penned out are the most imaginative or the cleverest. It's not because I am a particularly good speaker or very eloquent or well-learned. In fact, there is lots of other people I would rather listen to on a Sunday than myself. But the things I'm pointing to are the greatest things you'll hear. So the sermon is great, not because my words are good, but because of the truth they point to. And I think what we are looking at today is the best thing you will ever hear in your life. That is no small claim, but then church would be a pretty poor thing if we looked at anything apart from eternal truths. If I was to take us all in a coach, you know, Crawley Luxury Coach probably, go down to the uh, German city of Monster today, we could go uh, into the centre of the city and if you went there you would see an imposing Gothic cathedral. It's got a spire that reaches up 300 foot into the sky uh, and in its opposing uh, uh, image over the market square. If you were to look closely at this Gothic cathedral, if you would look closely, you would find on the side three rather strange things, things you would not expect to find on the edge of a cathedral. In the sun, you would find that they gleamed because there are three iron cages hanging down one side of the cathedral in the city of Munster. Each cage is over two metres high and uh, a metre deep and a metre wide. What on earth are those cages for, you may ask? Or if you're not naturally inquisitive, you'd be like, whatever. These cages are empty now but they once held the bones of three Christian men. John of Leiden, Bernard Kipperdoling, and Bernard Cretching. These three men had their bones kept in these three cages on the sides of the city uh, uh, cathedral. They were, in order, a preacher, a writer, and a merchant. Uh, they incited a very famous rebellion in the city in 1534. These men started off on sound principles. They looked at scripture, they looked at the uh, new translations that were coming out that uh, didn't rely on the Latin, and they found that a lot of Roman Catholic theology was corrupted that it took away from the truth, that it exalted priests too highly, that it made communion something that it wasn't. And uh, they found in there stuff that um, the Bible obviously uh, counteracted what the Roman Catholic Church said. So they rejected the Roman Catholic Church. All well and good, except what happens is if, if in the uh, 16th century you rejected the Roman Catholic Church, suddenly there was a power vacuum and other people had to step into that vacuum as to take charge and make the lords of the land. Now, 
what they did was they made adult baptism, and this will make some of you smile, compulsory. Didn't matter who you were, didn't matter if you'd been baptised as a baby, uh, but uh, whether or like it, if you were staying in the city, you were going under the waters for baptism. They, and this is where it starts to go a little bit off the rails, they forbid private property. So no longer were you allowed to own your own stuff, but everything was shared communally. Um, apparently, and uh, you'll be known few any uh, history uh, uh, of the church, where of it, um, there was quite a lot of uh, unmarried ladies, and so what they decided to do, they made polygamy mandatory as well. And uh, the uh, head guy, he instantly uh, got himself 13 wives. And then, if you're not thinking that that's bad enough, what they did was um, they punished even the smallest crime uh, with execution. So you would steal something, you would die. You uh, would counteract their theology, you would die. This suddenly turns not from a wonderful Protestant uh, uh, movement, but into something quite ghastly and gruesome. Um, they also thought Jesus was going to come again and that the city of Munster was the new Jerusalem. There was also one guy, Jan Mathis, he believed he was the new Gideon. He had a lot of fighting men in the city um, and it was besieged uh, uh, by the powers that be outside and he felt he was a new Gideon and so he decided that he was going to fight an army of thousands upon thousands that were besieging the city with 12 true and brave soldiers. And what he would have liked to have happened that this, him and his 12 allies would have won. They did not win. He went out into the, into the uh, surrounding army. He was very quickly surrounded. He was very quickly caught. Um, his head, um, because this, this is not the, uh, uh, the woke era of the 21st century, they took his head and they put it on his spike and then they took his genitals and nailed it to the city gates. So uh, there was a very clear uh, uh, moment of conflict. Um, the siege... Uh, um, the, the, the city gave in to the siege and uh, the three leaders, this writer, this preacher and this merchant who had uh, spearheaded this rebellion, uh, they were tortured and then their bones were left to hang in these cages on the cathedral uh, uh, wall um, for everyone to see because they were a warning. Rebel uh, against the church and rebel against authority at your peril. It is no secret that the Christian church is littered in its history with false prophets, um, heretical theology, wild and often hedonistic uh, reformations and destructive charismatic figures. Today we have got the church having virtually all of those. You will be able to find um, church at its worst at different points um, around the globe. Uh, last week we began to look at a bit in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians is his most angry. We looked at Philippians in uh, Primitive Church and it is beautiful and it is encouraging and it is uplifting and you just want to read it again and again. The, the letter to the Galatians is uncomfortable, it is awkward and um, you wonder why it's in scripture at all. It is 
him being deeply outraged at a church that is getting the gospel message wrong, that is getting confused over the core elements. It is thinking that a lot of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, and there are a lot of them, still apply today. Um, and so he pushes back against that. And in his frustration, in chapter 5, we get this message that Christians are saved by grace and that day-to-day -day living isn't one where we just look to fulfill the law, but the believers walk in step with the Spirit and live out beautiful earthly lives. And it is a really great uh, mountaintop moment uh, at the end of uh, chapter 5 when Paul lifts out those uh, fruit of the Spirit that I read out at the start of this meeting this morning. And the, what was true in the first century is true today. If we walk in step with the Spirit, we enjoy the Spirit's fruit in our lives and it becomes obvious and like fruit it becomes abundant and overflowing. And we will be happier, those around us will be blessed and the lost will see our behaviour and we will become beacons of light. We will become, um, as Paul wrote in Philippians, will be like shining stars. These things, these things seem to me worthy of our time, worthy of looking into and being encouraged at and reflecting on and examining our own lives to see if the real spirit or, uh, spirit's fruit is there. My son's just waved some toilet paper at me and I just can't think straight now. Um, Sheesh. Mark chapter 12. Right, let's move on. Mark chapter 12, um, verse 28. We're going to look at each of these nine fruits of the Spirit through uh, the lives and teachings of Jesus. So if you ever look at Mark chapter 12, um, verse 28, it says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing Jesus had given them a good answer. Everyone say good. good. He'd given them a good answer. And so this uh, teacher of the law, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, um, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Everyone say love. Love. And then in verse 31, the second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, said the teacher. Um, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, this is rather encouraging. If Jesus is saying this to you, then you should be uh, encouraged. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then, in, from then on, no one dared question him um, anymore. 
So we have in this chapter 12 this question and answer session uh, between someone that's titled Teacher of the Law. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus had been fighting the Sadducees with uh, a debate. Sadducees were very posh people. They were, I'm afraid, not like you and I. They were the top echelons of society. They were the priests, the aristocrats and the rich people. They believed their social standing gave them authority to make decisions on matters of theology. They thought, we are the top of society and we can tell everyone else what to do. And what they would do, they would love to seek out opportunities to argue and prove themselves as being top of the pile. They rejected a lot of uh, the teachings that the Pharisees liked. They only liked the first five books of the Bible, this, the, what we know as the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. They were the only ones that they recognised. All the other traditions and scriptures and teachings they dismissed. They didn't believe in eternity, they didn't believe in life after death, they didn't believe in angels and demons. Um, they really stripped down Jewish teaching to the bare bones. And Jesus was debating with them, he was showing them uh, that they believed some things in error. And as Jesus was skillfully debating with these Sadducees, these experts, these people that everyone else was afraid of, there was a scribe, a teacher of the law, someone who was familiar with the text. And this guy is thinking to himself, I know the text pretty well. I know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomies intimately. And I have a question in my heart. He knew there were 613 individual laws in the Mosaic books. He knew that Jews were bound by those 613 laws uh, in the way they behaved, in uh, uh, the way they performed ceremonies, and um, in, in all aspects of their lives. And he knew there were 613 laws that the Jews had to think about constantly to check that they weren't uh, um, enraging God. And this scribe, this teacher of the law, knew these 613 laws, probably off by heart. And he wondered, is one law more important than the other? I wonder if you've ever thought that. Looked at the law of the land and wondered, is it more important one thing or another? Um, I tell this thing every now and again, but, uh, but near the beginning of uh, our church, we, we had a lady um, who was pregnant and she had no means to get to the hospital. And uh, so I, and I got a call saying she needs to go because uh, she's going to give birth. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'll help. I've got a car. And um, so jumped in the car and raced around and uh, uh, raced around to the back of the shops where um, she was going to come down. As I was coming along, a police car saw me and police car uh, quickly turned on their lights and pulled me in. And they were like, do you know why I stopped you? And I'm really good at putting my foot in it. I said, uh, is it because I was speeding? They were like, oh, no, we weren't aware of you were doing that. What, uh, um, that's not why we stopped you. And I was like, ah, oh, was it because I wasn't wearing a seatbelt? And they were like, no, we weren't aware you were doing that. And um, they, they were like, uh, um, it was because you were on your mobile phone. And I was like, ah. So suddenly I'm in a position where I have... Um, 
I have gone well faster than 30 miles an hour. I've been driving without my seatbelt and I was on my mobile phone. You would have thought that was a pretty, you'd have thought um, being caught red-handed by the police and admitting it that my time on the road was pretty short. However, I, um, as we, they said, um, well, what are we going to do about this? I said, well, look, um, I was going to rush a lady to hospital. And it was beautiful. It was almost like the clouds opened and the sun shone down. Because at that very moment, when they started to question my reason for speeding and not having a seatbelt on and being on the phone, this lady came down the stairs from the top of the shops, very obviously pregnant and surrounded by all her family members. And the police were like, oh. And the law of the land, for a moment, was suspended because it was realised there was something more important than road laws at that moment in their mind. I'm not sure now whether that would be the same thing, but just for that moment, the police used their discretion to say it is more important to save that lady than for us to prosecute you for those particular laws of the land. And this scribe knows there's 613 laws, and he goes, which one is the most important? Which one does God care about? Are they all the same? Is it more important to save a person's life or observe the rules of the Sabbath? Is it more important to sacrifice animals or is it more important to be truthful in business deals? And he has this burning question. He's familiar with the law and he loves God and he wants to do the best, but he thinks there's got to be priority. There's got to be uh, uh, different levels. 30 years ago, just to add to this picture, there was a very famous leader called Hillel the Elder and he said this, that which is hateful to you, do not do unto your fellow. This is the whole Torah. That's the Pentateuch. That's the law of Moses. The rest is explanation. Go and learn. So, 30 years before Jesus was asked this question, there was a wise Pharisee and he said, don't do anything horrible to other people. A bit like Google's old uh, motif of do no evil. You know, uh, this Hillel the Elder thought that was what summarised the law. And that was often what was held at that time of don't do anything horrible to other people was the summary of the law. And so this scribe is thinking, is Hillel the Elder right? Could the law, these 613 rules, be summarised succinctly? Because it's very difficult to think of all these different rules simultaneously as something that you have to obey. Was there something missing? Was there a divine principle which cut through all the different arguments? And so finally, this guy's been wrestling with it. He sees Jesus' wisdom. He hears the Sadducees being put down. And he speaks up. Which is the most important of all the different commandments, Rabbi? He asks. I've studied them. I know them. I try and follow them, but which is the most important? Which would, should we prioritise? Is there one that summarises all the others? And Jesus instantly recognises the heart and the intelligence of this question. And he replies, and he doesn't just reply to this scribe. It's not done in private, behind closed doors. He wants everyone to know, because his answer is absolutely monumental it's for this entire generation of Israelites what he has to say and Jesus quotes 
the book of Deuteronomy. So this is something the Sadducees love. This is something that the scribes love. Uh, this is something in the Torah, in the, the Pentateuch, in the uh, books of Moses. And he quotes this bit that says, love God. Have love towards Elohim, he says. Love, first fruit of the Spirit that Galatians talks about. According to Jesus, our love of God should touch our entire being. There is nothing in our, uh, in our entire existence that the love of God isn't involved with. And Jesus then doesn't stop there. He doesn't say the love of God is everything. <clears throat> Jesus adds the second greatest commandment. The second greatest thing that you can live your life by. Have an affection and devotion towards other people. Have an affection and devotion towards God and have an affection and devotion to those around you. Now, it is possible we humans are a devious lot. It is possible that we start to argue about what it is to be a neighbour. You know, are my neighbours just the people that live at number, was it, 18 and 20, Bolney Court? Is that my neighbour and anyone else I can treat as dirt? That's perhaps a geographical understanding of neighbours. But Jesus didn't want you to think like that. Didn't want you to restrict neighbour to something that he did not mean. Elsewhere in the Gospels, and uh, if you've ever heard this uh, parable, uh, you'll know the phrase Good Samaritan. We don't get to define who the neighbour is. We don't get to say who we are nice to. Jesus told this parable of the Good Samaritan to say that essentially everyone's your neighbour. There's no one that you meet in your life that you cannot regard as your neighbour. And they should be loved. They should be an opportunity for you to demonstrate affection and devotion to. If you're a lawyer looking for a way out, there is none. Jesus makes it watertight. You love God with your entire being and then you show love to everyone around you. Suddenly, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, this Torah, this Pentateuch, this thing that the Sadducees and Pharisees both agreed on as the word of God, that this teacher of the law loved, that Jesus could quote in reply to this question. It's not a confusing history. It's not an impossible list of demands that sometimes we come across. It is a signpost to Jesus and his way. If you know who Jesus is and you know his way, then you have understood Scripture. You have understood the first five books of the Bible. To live well and be pleasing to our Creator, we are being passionately devoted to God and being 
hard-working in our caring of others, you have summed up the entire law by doing these things. Isn't that fantastic? Amen, let's all go home. But there's more. If you have lived any sort of life, you will know that the instruction to love God with everything you have and other people is quite difficult. In fact, I would have said it's impossible. People, let's just take people for a start. People are not always nice to us. They don't make it easy to be kind to them. They're all sorts of attitude and actions that gets our backs up. And it makes it difficult to be nice to them. Secondly, and this is a little bit more profound, not only are people not nice and often unlovable, but God is inscrutable. You can't see the workings of his mind. You don't know why he does what he does. And not only is he inscrutable, often he is incomprehensible. We've got no idea what on earth God is thinking any of the time and why he allows to happen what happens. Sometimes he allows things to happen not in our favour. What if you ever encountered that? You know, like life isn't just a bed of roses, but things go wrong. And if God is God, he's either um, an idiot or he's against you. That seems to be the way of it. And so it is very hard to love other people. And it is very hard to love God. This is the summary of the books of the Torah, but it is also an impossibility. And we need a resolution. Either the Old Testament is garbage, and this talk of Jesus, of loving God and other peoples, is nonsense, or there is a solution that we're not aware of. This solution is the Holy Spirit. He was given to believers, and that is why we should walk with him. You can't love God, and you can't love other people properly and wholly and in faithfulness without the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. There are unbelievers, they may look impressive, but they cannot love God and other people uh, with a true love. Everything's contaminated and wretched. As we pay attention to this spiritual leading and the, the Spirit's supernatural influence, we encounter something marvellous, something brilliant, something that makes this the best sermon you'll ever hear. We encounter divine affection. Our hearts are changed. Our natural reaction when people are horrible to us is to punch them on the nose. Our natural reaction when God doesn't want what we want to happen, when God allows disaster to hit us or our family, is for us to go, there is no God, and to walk away. 
This is our natural disposition. But the Holy Spirit steps in and goes, let me help you love. Let me help you love God. And let me help you love other people. There is a hope that this natural disposition of anger and resentment and unforgiveness can be resolved. I really like this. So it might have been pointed out a thousand times in theology books and stuff like that. Um, but it kind of made a new impact to me on, on Friday. The Holy Spirit, which is given to believers to help them love God and each other. What has the Spirit been doing for eternity? In the eternity before the creation of the world. He has been with the Father and the Son. And we are told that the Father and Son, unlike your family unit, didn't spend eternity arguing and quibbling over who used the last of the milk and uh, touching the, the, the heating dart. The Holy Spirit, Father and Son have spent eternity enjoying each other's company. The Holy Spirit, Father and Son have spent an eternity in an incomprehensible but unrivaled intimacy. The Trinity have been enjoying each other and been in perfect unity for eternity. The Spirit knows what a perfect relationship looks like because he has been in it with the Father and Son forever. Forever, the Father, Son, and Spirit have valued each other. They have lifted each other up. They have enjoyed each other's company. The Trinity is such a remarkable uh, thing that there is no earthly word we can use to convey it. There is no picture that we can use to represent the Trinity. There is no symbol out there that really gets to grips with the truth of the Trinity. There is no parable, no story. I've often heard things like, you know, um, the, the Trinity is like water. You know, it has three forms, gas and uh, liquid and uh, ice. State. That is not the Trinity. There is nothing on earth quite like the Trinity. It is a divine, incomprehensible mystery that isn't what God should be. If we are talking about God, shouldn't he again just be so elevated that the nearer you get to the truth about him, the more he should blow your mind. And so we have this incredible truth of the Trinity that the Spirit is part of, that he's enjoyed the, the Son and the Father's fellowship from the beginning. And so it is impossible to know the Holy Spirit in our lives and not experience the contagious pleasure that the spirit the spirit has experienced in knowing the father and son you cannot know the holy spirit without feeling love it is impossible it is in his dna if the spirit had dna it would be in it if he was a computer program it would be in his programming if he was made of atoms it would be in every uh, um, atom 
The Spirit is love. He has known love forever. He knows an uncontaminated, pure love that is uh, greater than you could possibly imagine. And he conveys that to anyone he inhabits. To any Christian that opens his heart up and says, Jesus, I believe you died for me, the Spirit comes in and we get a glimpse of the greatest touch on a person's life that they can ever experience, the love of God. With the Spirit, we get caught up, and some of us allow this to happen more than others. We get caught up in appreciation of God. Some of us can appreciate creation. Now you can look over a nice landscape and say, oh, that's nice. Some of us get a little bit emotive and go, oh, this is beautiful. Some of us can look at the faces of the people that God has made and we can say we love them. You know, they are someone that excites us and causes us pleasure. But that is a pale comparison to a human taking in and appreciating God once the Spirit is in them. There's nothing like it. It is these high ideals that makes church the very best place. It is why um, I would make a fool out of myself every Sunday morning, looking up here, stumbling over my words and getting sweaty and hoping the time uh, passes quickly. I do it because this is unparalleled in its beauty and its truth and its touch on humanity. It makes everyone's life living. doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're alone, I've got a massive family. doesn't matter what your background, to know the love of God is the greatest height humankind can look to. And it is why this sermon is the greatest one you'll ever hear. Not because my words are persuasive, but because what it points to is the greatest thing. And so we look to God and have an appreciation of him and we have an appreciation of what he has done and we become convinced again and again that he is actually good he is inscrutable and we don't always quite understand what he's doing but he is good he is incomprehensible he does stuff that we find absolutely terrible but we can rest assured that his ways are good and that his purpose is true and so we sing god bless tim and the worship guys that come up front and leaders in singing and so we pray and so we read scripture and so we are quiet in our soul listening and meditating on these things and so we can even enjoy uh, poetry and smiles come to our face because these things are workings out of the love of God which comes from the Holy Spirit it is the greatest truth the greatest experience the greatest part of being a Christian is knowing that love of God. And my encouragement this morning is keep in step with the Spirit. There's nothing else, everything else in life is a pale in comparison to this keeping in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit and have your enjoyment of God accentuated. Have it enlarged. Have your capacity for an adoration of God increased exponentially. Now the thing with the Trinity, 
They existed for eternity before the world began. And at one point, they decided that what they needed was creation. Their love and unity and delight in other saw this action. They broke into and invented something called history. And so we have the creation of the universe as told in, in Genesis 1. And specifically, in all these marvellous sort of uh, uh, black holes and solar flares and moons and planets, God makes Adam and Eve, who are the pinnacle of his creation. His love is so uh, uh, incredible that it brings forth more life because God uh, just wants to increase uh, the, just the capacity to love others. And so Adam and Eve are born. And we find God's love working its way out in physical activity. And then, later on, 2,000 years from this point, uh, that love of God came out again when God, when God the Father sent the Son into the world to listen to the Spirit, to live perfectly, to teach beautifully and to die for our sins. And so we find the love of God, this Father, Son and Spirit working its way out in creation and in salvation. And that principle now touches our lives. As we walk with the Spirit, as our hearts are melted in the presence of our King, we explode with practical, dynamic love for those around us. If we have the love of God in our lives, we will love other people. We won't be able to help it. The love of God, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, exploded in creation and in the plan of salvation. And for you and I today, this morning, if we, have the if we truly have the love of God in our lives, it will work its way out in demonstrations of affection towards those around us. And I'm not just talking about the people that live at number 18 and number 20 in your lives. I'm talking about everyone you encounter. The Christians in Galatia were obsessed with arguments, debate, cliques and fights. The whole fellowship was fractured. If we're looking on the scales of church success, I think we can rate ourselves slightly better than that, which is nice. Paul gets angry with them because they're not in step with the Spirit, they don't know what love is and they're doing the absolute opposite of what love is. This morning, there's this invitation and reminder. Draw near the Spirit. He is the best person you will ever encounter. Draw near the Spirit so that you can love God well and that you can love everyone else around you effectively. This behaviour to others is against our natural instincts because we want to... Uh, Retaliate, we want to hit back, we want to protect ourselves, we want to cut ourselves off, we want to criticise. This love is against the world's 
instincts and wisdom too. Doesn't teach it, you won't find it, but it's the love of God and it's what we find in scripture. The love of God has this divine source of the Holy Spirit. He is the fulfillment of 613 laws. We don't have to, thank God, remember 613 laws and live our lives by them because we have the summary of them in the Holy Spirit. We love God and everyone else around us. And I'm going to finish with um, a passage that, sadly, we often only encounter at weddings. And I think we do it a disservice because it is not really about marital love. It is about the love of God that he puts in our hearts. If you've got a Bible, we're going to finish with this. um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I am an impressive, charismatic figure up front, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Everyone say nothing. Nothing. Everything comes down to love. If I give all... I possess to the poor and give my body over to the hardship that I might boast. Surely that is an amazing thing and that we should celebrate. But Paul says this, if I do all of that and don't have love, I gain nothing. Let these words seep into your soul. Not as an instruction of how you should be with your husband or wife or partner, but as how you should be in and of yourself to everyone around you. No one is excluded from this lofty and exalted uh, encouragement. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Think on that. No record of wrongs. If you're keeping records of wrongs, there is no love. Verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then he talks about eternity. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, and he's talking about eternity. You want to know what eternity looks like? It is completeness. It is the perfect union of life everlasting. When completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we only see a reflection, as in a mirror. So at the moment, we kind of know love a little bit shadily. It's 
It's not quite pure. It's not quite totally revealed. But now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. But when we shall see face to face, when we see Jesus face to face, now I know in part, when I meet Jesus, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And listen to this. Now these three remain, faith, hope and love, all great things. But the greatest of these is love. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you at the core of Scripture, at the core of Father, Son and Spirit, at the core of the experience of Christianity, we have this word love. Lord God, we know that society and the media and the world has distorted this word almost out of recognition sometimes. But Lord God, I thank you that we can recover its true meaning by finding in it a point towards a devotion to God and a devotion to each other. Heavenly Father, I pray, I long, I hope, that these qualities of love that we find in 1 Corinthians 13, that we would find them in increasing measure in our own hearts. Heavenly Father, would our own lives and those lives around us not be better if we did not walk more in the Spirit and know more of this love? Heavenly Father, I ask it, make life richer and fuller. Help us love you with more uh, uh, meaning. Help us perceive and know how to be devoted to the, those around us with the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would walk in step with the Spirit and that the fruit of love would be clearly grown in our lives. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.